from the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. When I talked to my friends Nicole Perone and John Grasso earlier this month, they were anxiously awaiting the birth of their first child. Nicole and John are both what you could call professional Catholics. Nicole is the national coordinator for a young adult ministry initiative called Esteem, which works to prepare college students for faith life after graduation. And John, well, after several years working in digital media for the Diocese of Bridgeport, Connecticut, he's on the communications team at a network of Catholic philanthropic organizations called FATICA. I'm happy to report that in between our conversation and your hearing this episode, Rose Marie Grasso was born on December 12th, and both she and Nicole are doing well. I asked Nicole and John if we could squeeze our conversation in before their lives changed forever, because I really wanted to hear what Advent has been like for two super thoughtful, Jesuit-formed parents-to-be. Does the story of the Holy Family resonate differently when you're nine months pregnant? I also wanted to ask them something about the church at large. These are people who have devoted their professional and personal lives to serving the church. I wanted to hear their reflections on the church today, their thoughts, their feelings on this community of faith, which, as we know, can let us down, can be broken, but also the source of great community and beauty. What do they think about the state of the church, this church they're bringing Rose Marie into? You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Nicole Perone and John Grasso, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time. How are you doing? Doing great. Very pregnant. That's, That's very exciting. And John, yourself? <laughs> Oh, I'm doing fine. Um, you know, I have I have learned a, a lot in these uh, past nine months that when I follow the lead of the pregnant woman, however she is doing, I'm doing fine. That's good. That's, you know, uh, you know, our nausea, our morning sickness, right, to paraphrase Arrested Development. That's good solidarity. <laughs> I like to hear that. Um, I am very excited to talk to you both because, uh, well, I've known Nicole a really long time, and uh, Nicole's the best, and I love the work you're doing. And I've only met John in person once, but also followed you from a far and love the work you're doing and um it's cool that you've married each other and so and this is also like a first time in a couple of ways on amdg we've never had a married couple at the same time before so congratulations and over oh. 200 episodes we've never pulled that off and number two um we've never had someone so pregnant before uh wow we're so, really hitting all the benchmarks i know this just really that's very exciting and so when I was thinking about like, okay, our episode that comes out, this will be right before Christmas. We're recording this in earlier December by a little bit, but this will come out right before Christmas. And like, what is a good Christmassy episode? And I thought, you know, to talk to first time expectant parents in Advent, that's just too good to pass up, especially people who are as thoughtful as yourselves. So that's what I want to start with. I want to hear, we'll start with Nicole as you know, you do when you're talking Lies. about being pregnant. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, what has that, you you know, when like hearing readings or think, to, we're actually talking on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, Big Mary Day, in your own like prayer and reflection and conversation together with other, like how has this Advent hit for you? Has it been different? Um, I'm just curious about your experiences uh, as a first time expectant mother in this season. So. Tell me about it. 
Well, definitely, as the kids say, this Advent hits different. Um, I think I've always loved Advent, and Advent is about joyful preparation. And this year, we've really gotten to experience that in a way that we've never felt before. Um, not just the preparations of setting up like a bassinet or stocking up on diapers, all of which is certainly important, but asking myself and asking ourselves as a family the questions of how we've prepared ourselves, our family unit, our home, our dog, like what does that preparation look like? And so when you hear prepare the way and you hear all of these um, readings and you hear the things that we're sort of in some ways almost immunized to because we hear similar things every year during Advent, um, the lens definitely is is different this year. Um, and I can't help but also look at Mary in, in a new light. You know, again, we're talking on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception and to, to blow the lead a little bit here, um, my husband and I have a scheduled plan C-section coming up for this kid. So the the eviction notice is being served and it's being served on the feast of our lady of Guadalupe, which is awesome. So there's this cool, um, Marian connection that we've been able to cultivate. And that has been really special for us, but it makes me think a lot about Mary. And so this advent has really challenged me to think about Mary in a new way, because I'm, I, I can't help but think of it in the very practical sense. Like how did you ride a donkey in the third trimester? Like that just <laughs> makes no sense to me. I am uncomfortable sitting on my couch. Like, you're journeying for the census on a donkey, like, God love you. You know, I just don't even know how that could possibly be the case. But I've asked her intercession a lot when the baby was breached or when I started getting nervous about a C-section or the potential for snow on the delivery day. Um, it's been that connection with her, I think, has been new for me this year. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much for There's so much there. We could go down any of those um, those paths. Uh, so John, when you hear that, Nicole kind of share some of those perspectives, which for you, like are, are most resonant for your, with your own experience. Oh, it's a great question. Um, it, so uh, to embar at the risk of embarrassing Nicole a little bit, um, this is sort of the level of which we are Catholic nerds is, is when we found out that uh, she was expecting on spy Wednesday, actually the very first thing she said, um, was, Oh my gosh, Advent is going to be so lit this year. <laughs> and, I'm not joking, by the it's way. True. That was like, that was other than other, you know, I'm crying tears of joy and Nicole's talking about how great Advent's going to be because she's going to be in the home stretch. Um, so I feel like we've been kind of preparing for that, uh, that the, the entirety of this pregnancy, um, you know, you, God provides when God provides. So we certainly didn't plan for that, but um, it's, it's really kind of been a, an incredible gift. Um, and she, I guess if Nicole's saying she's really resonating with Mary, I think really the, the smart thing for me to do would be to say I'm resonating with Joseph, like the strong, silent type, <laughs> as best as I can be, <laughs> even though I'm not known for my strength or my silence. Um, no, but in all seriousness, uh, you know, I, uh, I have been involved very heavily in sort of the physical preparation. Nicole's doing all the hard work of growing the human, and so... Um, I've been, you know, the one doing the majority of the sort of the, the physical stuff around the house, doing the baby's nursery and mowing the lawn and doing the things that are on our list that are, they will never happen again, um, or we'll never have time for them again. And then also the physical prep for the baby. So I've, I have, um, really drawn heavily from Nicole in a way, I guess an expectant father really shouldn't, should, should not burden her, his, um, wife with, but really drawn from her spirituality, 
um, and her uh, sort of centeredness. Nicole's really been that kind of that North Star um keeping an eye on on me well you're not getting too occupied with your physical stuff you're not getting too occupied with this um and and so uh that's been helpful also i i uh i'm in spiritual direction uh out of the murphy center at fairfield university and so my spiritual director kind of knocked me on my rear end in the middle of this process when i was kind of regaling her with the long litany of things that i was doing to prepare for this child and uh she very patiently waited for me to, to, to go through that list in, in the way that I think your listeners are right now uh, and said, okay, great. You packed your to-go bag the other day? I said, yep, sure did. It's ready. Sit in the guest room. I could, I could put it in the car in less than 35 seconds. I'm good. She said, well, what's in your spiritual to-go bag? And I kind of looked at her. This was probably month six or seven and was just like, nothing. What, what do you mean? I'm supposed to pack that? Um, so it's, I've been playing a little bit of catch up, um, which is good. Uh, but I've definitely been trying to capture silence where I can on my morning walks with the dog and follow Nicole's lead. A lot of this has been about surrender. I like very much to be in control of everything. Um, and I've found out throughout the way, uh, through, throughout the pregnancy when, when we both got COVID in the middle of the summer, when we had a laundry list of things that had to get jettisoned because of, um, you know, we needed Nicole to rest more. When we had, when I changed jobs, there's been an enor- enormous amount of surrender um, to sort of the, the will of God. Um, and so Mary's been a phenomenal example of that uh, throughout Advent. Uh, and not sure what I'd be able to, what I would have done sort of with, without her example shining through Nicole. Well, thank you so much for sharing that too. Um, lovely from both of you. And again, a lot to, to reflect on. And I, I love that question from your spiritual director about like your kind of spiritual to go back. And I, I think especially like when there are things that you're preparing for that, I know like that feeling of, right, get packed, get all these things done. Like whether it's like the hierarchy of needs, is like we have to check these things off and then like, okay, that other stuff, like I'm sure, you know, that'll just happen or whatever or but like to kind of intentionally think about that and then also to me it feels very ignatian in the sense of like not you're not like gonna take a retreat right now and i've sometimes thought about this like you have a baby like you've never done this before it's like they should like take the baby to the hospital like, you know what this has been a big for you we'll hold a baby for a couple of days you go you go like refresh and go to like a retreat center and spend some time like no no like you are in it and it is nonstop. And so yeah, they just hand you a human. You're like, right. You like, there's you less, like, less required, less required preparation than like a driver's license. Right. For a 17. Yeah. Um, yeah. So here you go. And so it like, it has to be then within the chaos that you're you pulling stuff out of that bag that your spiritual to go bag or whatever, because like, there's not going to be the time to like carve it out like your hour a day, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Nope. So yeah, so I, I appreciate that that reflection, and that rings true uh, to me certainly. Um, yeah, I, I I'm think, wondering. No, go ahead, Nicole. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think you're absolutely right, Mike. That it it's that intentionality, and it's controlling what we can control, and letting go of what we can't control. Which, which is, we're famously bad at. Yes, like <laughs> historically, anyone listening to this who has known us for more than three and a half seconds is like, yeah, these two are really nailing that whole uh, letting go and letting God thing. We've we're totally great at that. But you know, part of the whole preparation is like only you can only prepare the things you can prepare, 
And pregnancy has been the biggest exercise in letting go of what you can't control because you can do everything right, quote unquote, and still have problems, right? You could think you're doing everything right, read every book, follow every metric, eat every right thing, do every right thing, and like life is still going to happen and and the pregnancy is going to run its course. And so this has been the biggest exercise for John and me and like, well, okay, here's the small window of what we can control. It's very, very small. So we're only going to worry about those things. doesn't mean Mm. we're like really good at only worrying about those things, but it has been a big, that's been like the biggest spiritual exercise, I think, for both of us. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and a lot is just like the idea, again, kind of like showing up like the yes, I guess, you know, we talked immaculate conception. It's so funny. The immaculate conception, they're like, no, no, it's not the annunciation. It's Mary being conceived. Yeah. But then the gospel oh. of the day is the annunciation. So it's so confusing. Yeah, we don't make it easy for people. No, no it's very no confusing. wonder people confuse it. <laughs> I know. But like. That's, that's, again, assuming these are people who are even going to Mass in the first place for the Holy Day. But um, it, it just, like, <laughs> this sense of, like, um, well, like, the the yes, uh, the uncertainty. And then, again, it just, it's just like a sentence after, but in that yes. But just, like, having to then kind of to give that consent and then to kind of sit in the – I'm get, turning this over, as you're saying. Like, I, I, there's not really not much I can do here besides show up and be in this – on this journey, um, which is certainly, oh yeah, which is certainly a challenge. Um, so much of I feel like it's been yes, I guess if that's if that's what you want, all right. Yes, I guess. Sure, yes, 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 I guess. Um, which is still yes. Right, right. So you mentioned again the baby coming Guadalupe Day. It's another Marian, like a great Marian feast, and uh, I think like especially one where you see the closeness of, of God to those kind of on the margins, like a kind of Our Lady appearing to Juan Diego, this kind of indigenous person who was not like a powerful, not a powerful guy uh, and had to kind of convince some skeptical people, including a bishop. And I'm just, so just curious for you, kind of with that day circled on the calendar, if there's any particular like Guadalupe connection uh, for you that that's come up or any, uh, any reflections you've had on that, that confluence, which is very exciting. It is a cool confluence. Um, was certainly not planned. Although once we knew the window of, of due date was in December, you start looking at all the holy day options in like a certain <laughs> window of time. And you're like, oh, well, this one would be cool. That would be cool. You know, I love St. Nicholas Day. It's my feast day. So I'm like, that would be cool. And John's like, mm, little early. Scale expectations accordingly, you know, and, and things like that. Um, one thing we really were somewhat averse to was a Christmas baby so that we, you know, I would like to be home and in my own house. Well, and Jesus deserves full attention on his Yeah, birthday. it's Jesus' birthday. Yeah, come on. It's, you know, come on. Um, but I think the Marian connection is just so cool. And um, we, we, love, we love Guadalupe. Guadalupe gets, um, you know, engaged for a lot of things around evangelization and around those on the margins and that sort of thing, which John and I really love. Um, I think also for me having that Marian connection is cool because one thing I've struggled with, I think in, in my own Catholic womanhood and in pregnancy is that the version of Mary you get is very like sort of sanguine and very serene. And she's like pregnant, but she has this teeny tiny little belly and just always looks like so calm and happy, which is like not how pregnancy is 
that is in no way connected to the lived experience. And so that's always kind of hard because that's the consistent image um, I think that is shown. And so to have this very cool, like Guadalupe is cool. Guadalupe is prophetic. Guadalupe is upending norms. Um, challenging the hierarchy, uh, speaking to those on the margins, speaking in indigenous tongue. Um, so just in, not that I had a choice really, but in terms of all my options, I just think it's such a cool um, connection to the Blessed Mother. If, if we're going to do it, like, let's just do a really prophetic, amazing iteration. Yeah, it is like this time of year where you kind of do reflect on like how the Holy Family is presented and like what is the image and is it like a scrub sanitary image or like even thinking about like, no, like the manger, like that's a challenging, that's like it's into dirty. the muck, right? Yeah, yeah. it's it's dirty. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, we uh, one of our episodes was with uh, Nicole, our fellow Central Jersey and uh, sister Colleen Gibson, just uh, speaking about like St. Joseph and, and even reflecting on him and like not again, not really knowing much about him and kind of having to fill in some of those spots. But this sense that like we, you know, that he comes to us only in the context of relationship with with Mary and then with Jesus and the community, but like that he doesn't really exist apart from that relationship and kind of embodies that sort of support and presence uh there in an interesting interesting way I, I have found like in my own life like since being a dad like the saint joseph connection is stronger and like using like that ignatian prayer to like go into the the manger and like just sit with him while mary is sleeping in my imagination and just like mm. trade stories you know as uh as fathers and so i yeah there is i don't know there's that like yeah there's the the kind of vision of like the postcard Holy Family, then there's like the kind of inaccessibility of this because they're too cool. But then also I do feel like there is like a lot, a lot to draw on there. And so I'm appreciative of your, your reflections sharing this. And I, I do feel like you're bringing me in a little bit, bring us into some of your, your own conversations and prayer life together over the, the past few months. And I am, one thing I did want to ask you about is uh, to kind of help help us do that. You're two people who work for the church, have a lot of opinions and uh, do a lot of writing and talking and uh, thinking. And so I want to be part of that conversation. And so I'm curious about like for you. Are you sure? That was the yeah. understatement of the century. A no. lot of opinions. <laughs> a lot of opinions. No, look, uh, which is which is good. I have also have a lot of opinions. I want to, um, so I'm curious, you're driving back from the, the doctor, going to these appointments and back, you're hanging out, cooking, whatever you're doing. Um, yeah, what has been like in your conversation recently? What like, what type of things are you, are you noticing? As professional Catholics, like, um, yeah, what is your conversation about these days? What has um, what has you most interested or uh, intrigued or nervous or excited to be bringing? You're bringing a new person into this church. Um, how is it doing? What are your your vibes right now? Um, so, John, maybe you could start oh, with yeah. Uh, yeah. Any any thoughts, and then we'll just go from there. So, I think some of our uh, sort of most intense conversations happen uh, on the ride home from mass, um, which for us is long. We, we drive uh, 45 minutes um, one way uh, to mass um, to, to our, our parish that where we got married. Um, and it's an incredibly wo wonderful, vibrant um, community with incredible homilies and beautiful music. Uh, and I've, we've, I've accompanied young people on service trips there and Nicole's a lector and a Eucharistic minister and I'm a Eucharistic minister and we really feel, um, we really, we really love it there. One of our dear friends is the priest, um, is one of the priests. Um, 
but what has been a sort of a, a struggle usually so we usually we come home from mass there and for 35 minutes we're just talking about oh my goodness that song was amazing this was great like i like uh, you know the whole congregation was singing or you know that father david is wonderful etc cetera, etc cetera. but uh, the past couple of weekends, uh, not really being able to make that drive. Um, I mean, we—I suppose we could, but in, in the best interest of Nicole, I'm too pregnant. Not. Yeah. Too pregnant. We've we've gone to mass um, somewhat locally, um, and and this is certainly not uh, a gripe fest or something. I want to, you know, I don't want to call anybody out, but. Uh, just really one of the most profound conversations we've had recently was coming out of uh, a church. That, that shall not be named the uh, last weekend with kind of feeling let down, um, having that, that typical experience of, well, thank, thank goodness that we have a good Eucharistic theology and we believe that we got, you know, we received the body, blood, soul, and divinity of, of Jesus here, but that's all we got here. Um, you know, we were you know, tokenized as sort of young people. We were, um, you know, which is always done, I think, with well intentions, but they kind of, everyone looks at you like, oh, young people, great. Um, you know, Nicole was almost trampled on the way out of mass, uh, you know, as she's visibly pregnant. Um, uh, music was not great. Uh, the homily, certainly the priest was trying his best, but it was not great. And so um, this sort of liturgical, this is a strong word, mediocrity really lit us on fire as we were trying to get some chores done after mass. Uh, and it frightened me in a little bit a little bit because there is sort of a, a liturgical desert around us and so I'm thinking of what we're going to do for our daughter right how am I going to get you know Nicole and I are going to talk you know infuse spirituality and faith deep into the life of, of this child but I know parents that have done that already and their children you know they don't you can't put them in the oven and they come out fully baked Catholics um, so we, we we had a long conversation about what what's and discernment about what do we need for this child to fall in love with and understand her faith in the way that we have um and sort of the thing on our mind is well it it needs to be it needs to be a better liturgical experience and i mean and the fact that we're driving 45 minutes for mass and we're, we're probably passing 40 churches to get to where we need to go i mean that's that's wonderful and so that a community can draw that but not sustainable um, so that's really been something we've been thinking about is, is how can we, um, and also what our responsibility is to sort of our local parishes, how can we infuse our gifts into the life of the parish to, to, to turn the corner? So, I mean, that's only part of the conversation. Nicole and I were pretty, you know, we were pretty hot around the collar after that. Um, but. Well, yeah, at, so at, at the risk that of That is an experience so many people so many people have so like yeah nicole like what was your what were you thinking uh well i was gonna quote something from notre dame which may never happen again so it's a good thing you're recording this um because john is a boston college alum we don't support notre dame in our house but because mike lasky is a longtime friend i'll I'll pull one out i believe it was (laughs) father hesburgh who said it to carolyn Wu. it's in one of her books that mediocrity is no way to serve jesus or his blessed mother and john and i think about that a lot Um, because we are easily horrified by the experience of mediocrity in the church because we know generationally millennials and Gen Z and onward do not accept the label of obligation the way preceding generations did. And so as a church, we put the, the 
layer of obligation on things, that you are obligated to go to Mass on these certain days, that you're obligated to find a parish community, that you're obligated to be married in the church, you know, to, to seek the sacrament of matrimony, to baptize your children and things like that. And obligation just doesn't resonate and exist in the same sphere for younger generations as it did for older generations. And so that just doesn't sell. So then the question becomes, what are we offering as a church? And this was sort of our conver- one of our conversations in the car was what did, what and I I don't love this language around faith, but what product did we offer that is worth buying? Um, that's not what faith is about. That's not what spirituality is about. But if you're going to really just boil this down to sort of secular language and, and a secular lens, if a, if a young family or young couples are going to look at this and go, I'm not getting anything out of this. It's mediocre at best. Um, they're not going to go. They're just not going to go. And it's not a dramatic disaffiliation like a some grand gesture it's just the slow burn of irrelevance it's just we're just not doing that and then suddenly over time it's burned away um and that really in in some ways i think that tortures john and me because this is important to us we do see the value in this we've been i think well formed in the faith by our families by the jesuits um by the communities that we've been a part of we understand the value of the richness of Catholic intellectual tradition, Catholic social teaching, um, Ignatian spirituality, all these things that get us through the day. So we know there's value. And so it pains us, pains us when to think about it as sort of a mediocre product that we counted on people to just keep buying. So like yeah. what, so you, again, you're going 45 minutes, which is of a drive, but like, it's not like another country or another state even. Right. So like what makes... What are the conditions that allow that one place where you have found a home to kind of flourish and have left some of the others, again, not even, we're not, you're not saying like bad or offensive, just mediocre, which in some ways is worse, right? The sense of just kind of, eh, if it was like really bad, maybe you'd get people who come to see that. But um, yeah, so what has like, what do you think like from your own like kind of noticing, what are some of those conditions that can lead a place to be vibrant because like that's a question everyone wants there's no one who wants a mediocre experience so i guess we kind of settle for that sometimes but um i'm curious for you having been at a place like that and then a place that's different places that are different like what what is it what do you think what are some of the things that you can put your finger on i think it's the intentionality i mean everyone's going to jump on and say well it's beauty it's this it's goodness but for our parish that, that we that we drive to, it's uh, it's sort of the intentionality um, that the priest and the lay staff have in every aspect of of worship, but also of community. So there's always a new ministry popping up there, and we don't necessarily participate in all of them. We I wish we could, but we can't. We're we're a far drive away, and 45 minutes in Connecticut's often two hours because of traffic. Everyone's trying to go somewhere else here, um, and um, we understand. Right, but it's the it's the sort of the intentionality. I think um, the music is beautiful and reverent, and uh, everybody there wants to be there and is excited about it. There's no territorial nature of like, well, we always sing this song and do it this way. We always, um, you know, so and so is always the lector on this day. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's some more of that, but but the pastor and the lay staff do a really good job of one splitting duties and two. Um, ensuring that that it doesn't become sort of a club 
Um, and Nicole and I, for a while, were kind of parish nomads. I mean, when when I lived at home and, and she lived in in Bloomfield, and and we uh, we weren't when we weren't married, we would meet in the middle every Sunday for mass somewhere. And so, so many times we'd walk in, and it would feel like we were walking into sort of a private club that we didn't really belong at. Um, and people people sure made us feel that way. And sometimes it wasn't even the priest or the liturgical ministers; it was the people next to you in the pew. And so to have well, where we go to our parish, we we don't live in that town. People don't really, they know me because I've done some work for them, but they don't really know us. Uh, and, and they don't, they don't do that. I think it kind of, that's sort of the leadership from the top that says, you know, anybody that comes here is welcome here. You don't have an assigned pew. You don't have an assigned this. Um, so I think that intentionality, it, uh, we just felt welcome and felt like we could be part of this community. We weren't going to be, we did not need to be put on a pedestal. Like it could just kind of come here and worship. I could come here and plug in. And, um, you know, I leave knowing I've received the Eucharist. We've listened to beautiful music that has often made me cry or smile and a homily where I'm thinking about it beyond just, you know, the, the post homily review in the car, which we do for every mass. We do. We do. I think that to John's point about like how people want to cite beauty, truth, and goodness. And I understand where people get that from. What sets, when I think about our parish, and we also have sort of a backup faith community that's maybe about 25 minutes away that we know we'll, we'll get something really good if we go there too. It's beauty without being pretentious, and it's truth through love, and it's goodness without trying. I think that it's easy to throw those sort of phrases around these like church buzz words and catchphrases and then they're kind of sound and fury signifying nothing but that's what when i think of our parish that's what we get hmm. yeah and so i'm what i'm not hearing you say necessarily is like certain program i yeah, I it is hard, no right? Because yeah. right, yeah, it, but it is like you didn't just like a chicken <laughs> or the egg question, you know? Like what, what's like what led to to that flourishing? Why why is that harder to reproduce? Are we kind of swimming in these like cultural waters that are just so challenging right now that like no matter what we try, we're like under resourced and not going to be able to make the transformations we need? I don't know, and I'm curious for you again, both having a lot of different work experiences in some vibrant places. Um. Yeah, what are some of the some of the other things that you've encountered or seen that characterize like a really healthy place that you would want to be a part of? Um, so even going beyond this like current parish, like oh, thinking, yeah. yeah, I'm curious, what are some of those things for you? Good open leadership. Um, I have never heard a good political homily on either side of the aisle, um, and we actually our our parish is some I think the community is very um, sort of center right, which is not quite my my political or theological affiliation, but it works for us very well because that's not brought up. You're not made to feel or 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 believe a certain way. You're, you know the faith is sort of approached in a very accessible way for you. But it's good leadership. So I mean the 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 parishes and communities that I know that are flourishing have a good inspiring leader um, that knows what they don't know and is willing to find the people that do know it and empower them. I think it's that that self-understanding. You're totally right, John. That's that um, these priests and parish leadership who, it doesn't have to be a cult of personality, but who know themselves really well. They understand their vocation. They understand their charisms. They understand the gifts God has given them. 
And when you know the gifts God gave you, you know the gifts God didn't give you. You know what you don't have because you understand and are intimately acquainted with what you do have. And so they're able to defer and delegate to to someone who's going to uh, fill the gaps for them. I think that's what makes a really good parish because you can have a parish where the priest isn't like the world's greatest orator or doesn't come up with the jazziest programs or something like that. Like you don't have to be the be all end all. But if you're willing to admit that and you're willing to acknowledge that other people can step in and build, you know, the culture of involvement and leadership and engagement and investment, that I think is what makes a really good parish because everyone's like, well, but our priest isn't the shining star. Our priest isn't this, our priest isn't that, or our staff isn't this, our staff isn't that, or we can't afford this program or that program. And all those things are like silver bullets anyway. They don't actually solve for the greater issue. But if you have that ability to discern, to know yourself and to delegate, I think that creates a better, healthier parish culture. And then you're not... um then no leader is put off by someone coming in who has gifts or energy to give to something because it's not a referendum on self or on anything you've done. There's no territorialism. So I'm hearing Ignatian detachment, discernment of yes. spirits, vocation. So just, I guess the answer, Mike, if we're looking for like a silver bullet, <laughs> yeah, you want to fuse Jesuit spirituality. It is. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You you know where you who you're talking to. That's good. Um, well, and those degrees are coming in handy. Those two. Yeah, no, those that's two right. degrees. Now, so um, you both, if you could, maybe we could move a little bit to some of the work that you're you're doing professionally, working with in different communities. To I'm sure that are asking a lot of those questions or thinking of how to empower people to to make change. And so maybe um, Nicole, we could start with you. you. Could just tell us a little bit about uh, the work that you do, and and then maybe how some of these themes that we're talking about kind of get woven into that work. Sure. So I am the national coordinator of ESTEAM. ESTEAM is a leadership formation program for young adults on college campuses across the country and around the world, uh, preparing for the transition from college campus ministry to post-grad life. And so part of ESTEAM's formation, I think, was around some of these questions that we've brought up in this conversation together today around why are young people, you know, disengaging from the life of the church and taking their their gifts elsewhere because we know that uh, these generations of young adults are the most highly educated generations super connected to matters of justice are also coming out of really great institutions with exceptional skill sets commanding notice for their acumen in secular fields as much as their faith life and the secular world is going to easily capture their energy and leadership Mm. and enthusiasm very, very Mm. quickly. And somehow in the church, we've cultivated a culture of paying your dues and waiting to really contribute or to take on meaningful leadership roles until you've reached a certain age or life stage. And we know there's no real reason for that. So esteem exists to equip these young adults who are already going to just be all-stars and brilliant, thoughtful, engaged, contributing members of society with a sense that God gave you these gifts and has given you a sense of your own vocation and your faith should be part of that too. It's a kind of a yes and. And I think what um, sets esteem apart is we try not to be faith formation or catechesis, but sort of a formation in ecclesial confidence. So what does it take Mm. to feel really confident 
entering into a faith community, knowing that you have a basic understanding of how the institutional church functions, how a parish functions, how governance functions, and that you're prepared with the skills, energy, and enthusiasm to do that and to participate in that really fully. So esteem in a lot of ways is trying in some way to be part of the conversation to address these questions of where are the young people going and Mm. how do we engage them more deeply, but also what do our faith communities need to do to be really ready to welcome them Mm. to this conversation we've been having about what makes a vibrant faith community, what makes a vibrant parish. So I spend a lot of time thinking about young adults and talking about young adults and still eking in being a young adult. Hope not much longer, but Pope Francis keeps moving that line for me, which is really helpful. So I'm still edging in there. Um, and that's sort of what I do day to day. Then I have, you know, some fun side gigs still talking about thinking about young adults. But our, the question that gets me out of bed every day is thinking about what kind of church young adults deserve and how do we be that kind of church? I love it. Which becomes intensely more personal now, considering we uh, yeah. Start- about we to have a young person in the church. A young person. Yeah, she's going to be a young person. She's got time till she's a young adult, though. Then I got to yeah, start worrying about adolescence and all the other. I got a whole other. Uh, Ooh, I, yeah, I love, I love that you're, well, a couple of the, those points there. They, again, that sense that, like, the dichotomy between young adults coming who are, like, equipped and prepared and, like, enter the workforce or their community in other ways. And like, there's already kind of a system in place to like, all right, you're in here. You can, you can do this. You can have this job. You can advance these ways. You can use whatever interest or skills you have. And then like are going. And then the church is like, oh, what, what, do, what do we, what can we do here? So like that, that sense of trying to kind of harness that in the same way. Interesting. And also thinking too, like the kind of um, perseverance you need to build in folks who like will sh- maybe show up then who, who the ones who are already showing up and who want to give and then showing up and then seeing that the, they don't know they finding places that don't know how to receive or, or empower them that I'm going to try and then it kind of falls flat. And so as you're saying, like that kind of confidence, ecclesial confidence, that's a cool phrase I haven't heard um, to be able to. OK, what do you do when you try and you're told like, um, you know, maybe later or you no one returns yeah. your call or. Uh, yeah, do you throw up your hands? Do you find somewhere new, or do you do you try to invest in in kind of where you are? Um, so Big are, discernment questions. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, and John, for you, I'm curious, uh, you're working with different groups, um, but also, I'm sure wrestling with some similar questions. So, tell us a little bit about what you're up to. Oh yeah, definitely. So, uh, um, recently, I, I moved from my work uh, of about eight years at the Diocese of Bridgeport as director of digital media to FATICA, Foundation, Foundations and Donors Interested in Catholic Activities. I'm the associate director of communications. So um, I, I, I sort of mockingly say I graduated. Um, I'm, I, I'm still very much uh, someone that is intensely focused on digital media, but now I'm looking at all questions of communications um, and digital media being a, a critical part of that. Uh, I've only been there for three months and I've enjoyed every minute of it. Um, it's been a really wonderful uh, experience working with this team um, and working with uh, individual members, member organizations, FATIC is a Catholic philanthropy network and our members are doing just incredible, almost mind-blowing work um, in sort of the Catholic social uh, tradition and teaching world. Um, I was able to see a lot of that firsthand in St. Louis and one of our recent gatherings. And so I'm still very much in the like 
understanding the organization, um, amassing as much information and material as possible. And my hope is after this paternity leave to really hit the ground running um, with sort of strategic communications to take the great work of our members and sort of get it out there. So hopefully more work is uh, inspired by it. Uh, and then on the side, I'm a, a freelance communications consultant um, with, a, with a very hard specialty in the Catholic Church. And so uh, I've been doing a lot of work with um, with, with parishes and, and uh, media corporations uh, or Catholic media and uh, the Vatican. I've been working with the Vatican's uh, Synod office. Um, uh, and I, I recently finished a year with uh, the Vatican's Dicastery for Communication. And so um, what I found a wonderful thing uh, is that they sort of continue to tap you for small projects here and there, which I love uh, being a part of. And so a lot of what we're reckoning with on every level from the international level down to sort of the parishes that I do work for is uh, digital discernment um, and being good good stewards of, of social and digital media, good stewards of these resources. Um, understanding that, that they're, you know, there's a lot of debate right now. Are they innately good? Are they innately bad? I mean, I don't think the internet is innately bad. I think some platforms and corporations could potentially be, but um, I think sort of painting with a broad brush is problematic, but they are where we need to be. And so I've been working with, with every organization um, that, I, that I, I, I freelance with is sort of where is your place in all of this? What is your obligation? Where, you know, this is the wilderness and you are the voice crying out. So what, what are you crying out and, and to, to who are you, are you crying to? Um, and how can we good, be good examples? Um, you know, so much of Catholic social media is sort of the worst example imaginable. And I think of this when I think of our child. You know, I know so many people that have seen the way we talk to each other online as Catholics and go, no, no way, not for me, can't be part of that. Or that's, if that's how you talk to each other, there's just no way. Um, and so um, I'm working with my clients to try to slowly change that to bring discernment into digital media. Why am I here? Who am I speaking to? What gifts are, is God calling me to communicate to these people? Um, who are my people, et cetera. Um, and that's been uh, a, a pretty cool and uh, definitely some and a new emerging part of, of that digital media vocation that sort of bubbled to the surface eight years ago, fresh out of college, going to the diocese. Yeah, I mean, and those are, those are big topics for sure. And like the way you even mentioned, like, okay, so like our kids are coming up in this and what is the world we want for them both online and then like in our in our parishes. And maybe that could be like one last thing I'll ask you to both to share is like what is right now in this moment um, like a hope you have for her and her faith and in her community and your, and your family? What is like one prayer or hope you might have kind of on this precipice of about to welcome her into the world? Um so it doesn't have to be the only one, you know, if you ask someone their favorite movie, that will stress them out. But like a favorite movie is less stressful. So like a hope, um, not the number one, hope. a hope you have for your daughter as she's about to like enter the world in a new way. And Nicole, you can go first. Oh, yeah. I tried to stretch that out to give you time to think about it. That was nice of you. Um, you nailed it. I, the first thing that came to mind was the, the prayer that's often um, attributed to Pedro Rupe about falling in love and staying in love. And um, I love that. I mean, you know, in Ignatian spirituality and Jesuit world, we're, we're a sucker for these beautiful quotes, these beautiful things that get, you know, hung on walls and retreat houses and things like that. But in all seriousness, that is my, my hope for her is that she finds something 
to fall in love with that's bigger than her. And I would really extra hope that it would be something in our faith tradition. I hope she would fall in love with our faith the way John and I have. Um, Maybe that's only through sending her to a Jesuit college or university that Mm. that will truly come to fruition, Mm. you know, God God willing. But I do hope that she finds something bigger than herself to fall in love with and stay in love with and let it decide everything. Thank you, John. Oof. Uh, I'm trying to get through this one without crying. Um, <laughs> I, We're very emotional these days, all of yeah, us. <laughs> we are. I, I hope that we, as her parents and her faith community that we surround her with and her village here, we live in this beautiful neighborhood uh, full of families and, and uh, uh, young people and friends that will, that, will, that will be her village. I hope that they help her find out uh, whoever she is, whatever her vocation is um, and that she knows that what whatever that is that she's loved and accepted and just go be the best version of that I don't care I just want you to be you God has given you all these incredible gifts and talents and and I don't know what they are yet I can't wait to see what they are I can't wait and I just want her to know that she's in envi- an environment where uh I can't wait. Whatever that is, it's going to be wonderful. I hope it. I hope that it ends up in service to the kingdom in some way, shape, or form. Um, and uh, yeah, that's really, that that's really, really it. Um, and admit she's loved and impossibly loved by so many people. Oh, well, those are lovely wishes and prayers, and you'll have them recorded in posterity so you can share them with her and to <laughs> embarrass her when she's older. Oh, I can't um, wait for that, too. I'm going to make yeah. dad jokes like you wouldn't believe. He's I, been yeah, practicing that for years. I don't I don't doubt it. Um, and so thank you so much again for taking this time as you are in this liminal space, kind of getting ready for for this. Again, even by the time that people will be hearing this, uh, you'll, you'll be uh, hanging out with your daughter uh, in, a, in a new way. Um, and uh, so we'll we'll be excited to to let folks know uh, the good news in a couple of days. But yeah, thank you so much again. Uh, blessings the rest of your Advent and Christmas and hospital crazy time and and all of that. Uh, yeah, all of our, our prayers for you from from here at Jesuit HQ. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
and, as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>